0: Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast where we have conversations about pop culture, parenting, and identity politics, all from a multicultural perspective. I'm your host, Lori Tharps. I'm an author, a journalist, a mother of three, and an all-around diversity diva. I'm really glad you're here because we have a lot to talk about. On Episode 5 of My American Melting Pot, we're going Behind the Music with Jazz Composer Sumi Tanoka. If Sumi's name sounds familiar, that's because she's the musician who composed the theme music for our show. But her claim to fame has nothing to do with this podcast. Sumi was born here in Philadelphia. She's a jazz pianist, a composer, and an educator. She's also the daughter of an African-American father and a Japanese-American mother, so she's totally melting pot. Sumi has been described as a fierce and fascinating composer and pianist by Jazz Times. She's been called provocative and compelling by the New York Times and continually inventive, original, surprising, and a total delight by Quadranos de Jazz. Sumi has also been a composer on numerous films, including the documentary Queen of the Mountain and the Academy Award-nominated film Family Gathering. She's also taught piano at Bard College and at Dutchess Community College, in upstate New York. I'm thrilled we get to talk to Sumi about her more than 30 year long career as a musician, about her unique multiracial identity and upbringing and how they influence her music. And I wanna talk to Sumi about why jazz matters. And spoiler alert, since we're recording this episode in WRTI's beautiful performance studios, Sumi has promised to play a little something for us on the piano at the end of our interview. So make sure you stick around all the way till the end. But before we get to our conversation with Sumi, you know we have to take a break for a Melting Pot Minute. Today's Melting Pot Minute is brought to you by Hidden Histories. Hidden Histories, stories that the man doesn't want you to know about, but we're going to tell them to you anyway. Hello, Melting Pot community. For this Melting Pot Minute, I want to tell you about a new nonfiction book called Enemies in Love by Alexis Clark. Enemies in Love is the true story of how Eleanor Powell and Frederick Albert met, fell in love, and raised a family. Eleanor was one of a small number of African American women who served in the United States military during World War II as a nurse. Frederick Albert was a German soldier in Hitler's army. Eleanor and Frederick met in the prison of war camp where Eleanor was stationed and where Frederick had been sent after being captured by Allied forces. I won't give away how their romance blossomed or the length they had to go through to be together after the war, but it's good juicy stuff. But here's the thing. After Eleanor and Frederick established themselves in the United States, the rest of the story is pretty basic for a marriage at that time. He works, she becomes a homemaker, they have two kids, That, in my opinion, is what makes this story truly remarkable. Here you have an interracial relationship, and it's not just interracial, it's intercultural as well. And here, this is the United States, 25 years before the Loving decision made interracial relationships legal in all 50 states. The fact that this family had a nice home, they lived in a middle-class neighborhood in Connecticut, and produced two successful children seems like a miracle. But that's only because we've been conditioned to believe that interracial romance was taboo and impossible. Clearly, it isn't, and it never has been. This is not to say that Eleanor and Frederick and their children didn't have to struggle with racism and other people's ignorance, but they lived a pretty good example of the so-called American dream. Just imagine if stories like this were more commonplace, meaning What if we could all list off dozens of interracial, multicultural marriages besides Mildred and Richard Loving? It would normalize mixed-race relationships, for one, and it would help dismantle the belief that there is something unnatural or unusual with people of different races loving each other. It goes without saying that interracial relationships have been a part of American history since Europeans invaded this land. But as a society— we've been reluctant to acknowledge that many of those relationships were consensual. They were normal, sanctioned by the law, and successful. Alexis Clark should be commended not only for writing a really good book, but also for unearthing another example of America's multicultural history that's been hidden for far too long. Now, speaking of multicultural histories and interracial relationships, let's get to our conversation with Sumi Tanoka. Welcome to My American Melting Pot, Sumi. Hi, Lori. It's great to be here. Well, I'm very excited to have you here because I feel like your life story, your career, and your approach to music completely embodies the Melting Pot mission. So I want to start by going back to the beginning of your career and actually back to your childhood. Oh, that's great. So, I know that your father was African American and your mother was Japanese American and that you grew up in Philadelphia in the 50s and 60s.
1: I did. I was born in 1956. Mm-hmm.
0: So, can you tell us how did you fall in love with music?
1: Well, that was pretty easy for me because my mom was such a big music fan. She particularly loved jazz, but she actually talked about Melting Pot. She played every kind of music from Pete Seeger and the Weavers to Bella Bartok and Nina Simone and Fats Waller and Thelonious Monk. And she would take us to the Academy of Music and we'd sit up in the peanut gallery, you know, the $5 with the little binoculars so that you can see the, the, the Academy of Music. I actually have a lot of memories associated there listening to music as a child because my mom she made the point to really take us out to a lot of live music. So I didn't just hear music in the house. I heard music as an audience member, as a child, and we would go to many different kinds of concerts. Mm -hmm. And I was bitten by the jazz bug. You know, when I was a kid, the music that I liked the most was the music that made me kind of want to dance. So when I heard Fats Waller, Mm -hmm. anything that would tickle my funny bone, Mm -hmm. that's why I liked Thelonious Monk, because Mm -hmm. when I heard Monk's music, I literally would laugh out loud because he has such a incredible sense of musical humor. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand it as being that when I was a kid, But I have a very special memory with my own daughter listening to music in the car. We both busted out laughing at the same time when we were listening to the pianist, Abdullah Ibrahim. And we both busted out laughing exactly at the same time. And it just shows you the power of, I remember looking at her like, how do we just do that? But music does have that thing. Mm -hmm. It engages so many different aspects of you. And I guess as a kid, I was just naturally drawn towards the power of music in that way.
0: Was your mom a musician as well?
1: You know, she wasn't. But when she was a kid, I think that was one of her strongest desires was to learn how to play piano when she Mm -hmm. was younger. She told me she used to climb this tree and listen to her neighbor practice the piano. Mm -hmm. And my mother was – her parents were migrant workers in um, Bainbridge Island, you Mm -hmm. know, Japanese-American. And Mm -hmm. so they had literally very little money. So Mm -hmm. she made sure when she had kids that we all had piano lessons and I was – one of the first.
0: So you have siblings? Did they I also? do have an older
1: sister and two younger brothers.
0: Okay. So did everybody play music then that your We mom all wanted?
1: played music.
0: Did you guys have like a group? Did you have like a family? No, group? we
1: never had a family group, although I still play music with my brother who plays great vibes and he plays still drums and... uh he teaches music in the schools in one of Kenny Gamble's magnet schools. Oh,
0: wow. Yeah. How exciting. Yeah, he
1: runs a whole music program there. Okay. And he's a professional musician. You know, so <laughs> sometimes we play together. And I have a brother who plays sax and guitar, and I, my sister used to play violin and flute. Oh, so wow. So we all so played. Very yeah. music. So
0: your mother mm-hmm. must have been very happy that she got her musical We, used, You know family. where we went?
1: We went to settlement music school. Settlement Music School provides like a sliding scale for their families. And so my mother, at that one point, she was like, though, because I was taking dance, drama, and music, and a music workshop. And she's like, you're going to have to choose because, you know, we can't do all this.
0: (laughs) So so you were playing music from an early age. Mm -hmm. What was it that made you decide? I mean, again, a lot of kids play music when they're young. And I actually read that you graduated high school when you were 15. I did. So really young, when did you know that you wanted to make music your career? Like, when did you decide that this was something that was more than just, you know, something fun that you did at home or with your family?
1: I have a very specific night that I decided, and that was my parents took me to see Thelonious Monk at the Aqua Lounge in Philadelphia for my 13th birthday. And it was that night I left the club with my parents, and I was like, I'm going to be a jazz musician.
0: Can we just pause for a second? I love it that your parents took you to a jazz club when you were 13. I mean, That's kind of an unusual... Well, I was a Monk fan at 13. Okay. I mean, I was a serious
1: fan. So it was a birthday present because I was a Monk fan. So your parents took you on a date. (laughs) (laughs) They took me to see him for my birthday. That's excellent. Yeah. And uh, um, that's why I I think I remember it so well. And it was a very exciting evening because Monk was not in a... He was in a very interesting phase of his life where he was kind of um, struggling somewhat mentally to some extent. Mm-hmm. And the first two sets he didn't play at all. And I was like, oh, well, he was sort of playing. He with like a note here and there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my goodness, is he not going to play? But the last set he came out and he played solo, mm-hmm. piano round about midnight Mm. and I was just done for that was Mm. it for me you know you remember these singular moments in your musical life Uh and I remember it's like an epiphany I just Mm. knew hearing him that this is what I wanted to do.
0: But when you say this is what I wanted to do, was it I want to play in jazz clubs, you know? Was it I just want to make music? Like what was it that you decided that you wanted to do? For me,
1: it was always about making the music. As a matter Mm -hmm. of fact, to the point where the other aspects that come along with making music, I still feel like I am... Catching up in a way, Mm. because it's never been about the stage for me or about the, it's always been about making the music. And I've been kind of shy a lot of my life, like even being able to speak publicly like we're doing now. Like I remember my first radio interview, I think I was about 17 or something. And I had my first gig in Philadelphia at the Annenberg Zellerbach Theater, Mm -hmm. with my trio, and I was being interviewed on a Penn station, and I remember listening back to the interview, and I said, um, so many times that I was, like, just horrified. (laughs) So, you know, you have to learn that aspect. The public aspect of performing was something I had to kind of get with, but it was always about the making
0: of the music. So did you decide to do, you know, at 15, do you go to music school? Do you go study with you know musicians like what did you do to like craft this life for yourself in terms of preparing yourself well
1: i had an unusual education for okay. one my parents were both radicals you know my mother had been interned at an early age and i think that she embraced radical politics as a means of addressing her anger about having been interned as an american citizen in her mm-hmm. own country and it took her
0: so she was in the japanese internment camps that's what you're talking about yes
1: Okay. And so it took her quite a while to come to terms with that. Mm -hmm. She didn't even start talking about it, like letting us know about it, until she got into her 50s. But she was quietly kind of addressing that aspect of her anger. And then my father was just, he was like a working class intellectual. He was a Marxist. And Mm -hmm. um, I have a lot of memories of them because they were very active and very vital in terms of their activism So in terms of education, they Mm -hmm. really were disenchanted with the public school system. So they pulled me out of the public school system and put me into a private school for a while, and I really didn't like it very much. And then this was a time when they were having, like, all kinds of alternative education and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So they had these alternative schools, and I happened to go to one where— I was able to get out pretty early because I was able to make my own schedule and my own credits. But the reason I kind of went through there really quickly was because for a year, I didn't go to school at all. And they put us with a woman who was a very radical kind of private tutor. And for that whole year, her emphasis was on self-education and self-direction, self-motivation. So it was my brother and I, my younger brother and I, the one who plays Vibes. We would go over there, and she would just literally... She'd ask us, well, what do you want to learn? What do you want to do? And we'd be like, oh, what are you going to teach us? And she'd be like, well, what do you want to learn? We'd be like, what are you going to teach us? <laughs> and then, you know, we were listening to music and I was listening to records and, you know, oh, this is so easy. We're going to like, you know. And then after a while, you're a little bored and a little restless. And it's like, well, what do I want to learn? And so mm-hmm. that whole year, uh, macrame was really big at the
2: time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I was like, well, I want to learn macrame. So she's like, oh, really? Well, how are you going to do that? And when we were like, "What do you mean? Aren't aren't you going to teach us?" And she'd be like no, how are you going to do that? So then it was going to the library, getting the book out, Mm. materials, going Mm. to the string store and the Mm -hmm. bead store. And then Mm -hmm. before you know it, I'm making like all these macrame handbags and wall hangings and like selling jewelry and and doing all this stuff. Wow! But the whole thing was about self-motivation. So when I went to this quote unquote free school, Mm -hmm. I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to do music Mm -hmm. and I had it in my mind how I wanted to do it. Like I didn't really want to learn about how to play jazz in a, college environment. Mm -hmm. Although at 15, I left to go to Boston to go to New England Conservatory to check it out, but also to check out Berklee School of Music. Mm -hmm. And I met an incredible teacher named Madame Shaloff who taught at those places. And she also turned me on to an amazing jazz pedagogist, pianist, who is a Lenny Tristano disciple. His name was Charles Mm Monakis. And so I ended up leaving Philly at age 15 to move to Boston to study with her. Mm -hmm. And Charles Benakis.
0: How does a 15-year-old do that? You weren't in an official college program. You were just studying with them. Like, where did you live? And were your parents like, go,
1: good luck? Well, they weren't exactly go, good luck. My parents are amazing people. They were very alive and vital people. But they had their own dysfunctions, you Mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. and we were having some family issues. So Mm -hmm. when I left, I was a little upset with my parents at the time. But I did always have their blessing, you know. So they really did a good job in that. We were very well loved. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the integrity of our family structure was very tenuous at Mm -hmm. times. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But so when I left, I had I knew I had their support, I okay. always, to go after what it is that I loved, mm-hmm, to the mm-hmm. point where I think my mother didn't have much of a practical bone in her body, you know. <laughs> so, And I have a very dear friend who says, well, you know, your mother was a dreamer, and that's a really great thing to have a parent who's a dreamer if you're an artist, yeah. because they don't get into, like, well, what are you going to do to make money? It's like, oh, you want to be an artist? Oh, that's the best. Like, you know. <laughs> I mean, my mother was seriously romantic about oh. being an artist. She actually wanted to be a painter, and she loved the fact that I was playing jazz I mean if she could have done it she would have done it Mm -hmm. so she was like my biggest fan she showed Mm -hmm. up to all my shows Mm -hmm. she was such a support I mean it was just so I had that even though they had
0: their own problems right problems right right Right. so you're in Boston at 15 you're studying with these great jazz musicians because you already know I want to be a jazz musician so that's what I need to do is study with the greats and how long were you in Boston
1: I was in Boston for about a year Mm -hmm. I ended up moving to Detroit after living in Boston for a while, because mm-hmm. I had, I met someone that I ended up going there, my boyfriend at the time, and mm-hmm. and but that's where in Detroit, that's where I actually started doing my first gigs some R&B gigs, also sitting in for the first time with jazz musicians. I was also going to hear Marcus Belgraves, who is is this wonderful jazz trumpet player educator who had his own big band, and I was going there and experienced some of his mentorship. And and then I came back to Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. So I was working on my own. I mean, I left home with $50 in my pocket. (laughs) Wow. Wow, <laughs> And I had, like, three different jobs when I was living in Boston, you know, struggling mm-hmm. to make a living and try to survive.
0: And It was an early age to leave home. Yeah, really early. But then, I mean, again, it really strikes me that you were very focused on what it is you were trying to do, though. Like, that didn't leave you. Did you ever, I mean, in these early years, did you ever doubt and think, maybe I should just go get, like, a regular, like, college degree and be a nurse or something? Like, did that ever you know, come to you? No,
1: never occurred to me. I mean— Now it does. (laughs) Sometimes I think at this age, looking back, it's like, hmm, you know, but not really. I mean, I guess I love it too much. And you you find that there are the I think the people it's like any creative person who really wants it, it doesn't tend to come up as much. I mean, I guess it depends on your background, too, and your support system. Yes. You know, because I do think having support, like having two parents, for instance, that really understood the music and also really supported me, I think was probably much more supportive in a real visceral way than I even realized because I I never actually considered turning around.
0: So when did you feel like you had made it as a musician? Was it, I know your first album was With an Open Heart. Was it having an album? Was there that first gig? What was it that made you think like, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm a musician, like I can call myself a professional musician now. What was that moment for you?
1: You know, I don't know that I ever really had that pivotal moment where I can call my... Because even now, I sometimes I wonder, like, am I really doing this? <laughs> I, I guess I am doing this after all this time. And, I mean, I do think part of it is having the legs to keep standing. That's part of what you develop legs, you know, like my first... My first lesson with Mary Lou Williams, for instance, who mm-hmm. was one of my teachers and mentor to me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't study with her a very long time, but she had a very powerful influence on me. Mm-hmm. But, but the, one of our first lessons, she says, well, you know, you got to go through the muck and the mud in order to play the blues. Oh. So yeah. it's kind of like that, too. Mm-hmm. It's life. It's, um. I think, in order to be an artist that is, you know, you use the stuff from your life yeah. to create.
0: yeah. And speaking of which, that's a perfect segue for my uh, my next question, which was, as somebody of mixed race heritage of Black and Japanese, did you ever feel like, you know, having these two distinct ethnic backgrounds, did that influence your kind of music, your musical taste, your your sense of self as a creative? Do you feel like it impacted or influenced, you know, how you approached music being biracial, especially at a time when people weren't talking about being biracial, right? It wasn't about a thing. You kind of, this idea that we have these conversations about being mixed or biracial is a totally kind of 21st century conversation. Did your ethnic heritage, do you think, influence or impact your music or your choices about your music in any way?
1: Sure, although it's not really clear cut, but I think partially... What it is, it's being biracial, but it's also growing up in the 60s. It's Mm -hmm. also having the parents that I had Mm -hmm. who were very much into having the conversation to some extent, even though my mother didn't really talk about the camps until later. We had my Japanese grandparents living in the house that I grew up in Mm. like the last four years of their lives. Mm. And my father, I remember him trying to talk to my grandmother who was Japanese and really didn't speak very good English, but somehow they managed to communicate. And it was always funny listening to them them (laughs) try to have a conversation. And my father, I think because of his radical politics, was very much interested in us developing a sense of what it meant to be Mm African-American. And I remember him saying to me, well, you know, if you just have one drop of blood, you're African-American. I was like, well, what does that mean? And then I went through a whole thing. I think each one of my siblings went through a whole thing about our identity and Mm -hmm. race and that aspect of that, thinking about ourselves, what that meant. And so we were conscious to some extent about the fact that we were multi ethnic because Mm -hmm. of the fact that my parents were conscious, and they were actually not only conscious, but they were very much wanting us to develop some values in and Mm -hmm. around what that actually means, the benefits of that. I think that really kind of made an impression on me. I mean, I remember at one point, well, I would say, I'm half Japanese and I'm half black, and then I would say to myself, well, wait a minute, what does that mean, being half Japanese and half black, and is that even really true? And which half?
0: Right. Right.
1: You know, why right. do I even have to think of it as being half and half? Because it's it's everything, right? right? And right. then if you really look at the, if you want to get really particular about it, I mean, my mom is actually, she doesn't have a lot of mix. and She's fairly from each generation goes mm-hmm. back. She's Japanese. Whereas mm-hmm. my father has this huge mix, right? Mm-hmm. But the original question was, how did that affect my music? Yeah, yeah. So I think it has to do with wanting to be authentic about when you're an artist, like For me, when I'm writing music, it has to come from something that I care about or Mm -hmm. someone that Mm -hmm. I care about or Mm -hmm. some particular story or Mm -hmm. some particular picture or something that's very real and that actually holds meaning for me. Otherwise, it's really hard to wrap your mind around what it is that, for me anyway. I don't Mm -hmm. think it's that way for everybody, but Mm -hmm. like, I want to be able to have some actual real source to draw upon that's authentic to me. And so you live and you learn and you grow and there are things that happen and Mm -hmm. things that you think about. And even politically, like, it's all a changing ground, you know, so to speak. And I've come through an incredible time in history, like growing up in the 60s and what the country was going through at the time. Mm -hmm. So I think some of that also informed my music and what it is I want to do with music. And luckily, music was very important in my family, and also my parents and my mother, who I got a lot of the music from, was so open. So I got a chance to experience live blues and the best of the best of all the genres, you know, classical, um, R&B and jazz and, you know, it was not just one thing, it was many things.
0: Right. Can you talk to me a little bit about the music you composed? I think it was called Out of the Silence, Out from the Silence, that was really meant to bring attention to the Japanese internment camps. Tell me a little bit about how that came to be and what you were trying to do with that composition.
1: So my mother had been interned, and Mm -hmm. I guess when she actually really started to talk about it, I realized just how much it defined her life in a certain kind of way. Mm -hmm. Not that that was all that she was, but that there was so much anger associated with it, and I couldn't imagine what it must have been like to be 16 years old and have your whole life ripped apart from you in a way because mm-hmm. they were just literally taken from their homes
2: mm-hmm. and
1: also because of the type of racism at the time, you know, really made to feel that very viscerally being identified because of your race and just what that would be like to be affected by that, is particularly at that age and at that time. Before you go and, on, can you read a little piece about what your mom wrote about that I would moment? be happy to. Um, so in this piece... My mom was in the piece, and I actually used some of her writing, and she actually read this in the piece. And I wrote music around this part of what I'm getting ready to read. Mm -hmm. Um, I looked around me. The army had not forgotten any of us Japanese. An unexpected audience gathered to witness the involuntary exodus. My head pounded. My stomach churned. My sense of reality slipped and shifted like a kaleidoscope. I thought about the rumors of the Jews and Hitler's Germany. In desperation, I told myself to pray. If I were a Christian, a god might listen. If I were a Buddhist like my parents, this upheaval could be faced with calm. The only belief that might possibly sustain me was the dream of a mystical democracy nurtured by the patriotic fervor of World War II and a lifelong yearning for reconciliation of my two worlds. But moment to moment, unbeknownst to me then, the actual events of my life were stripping away the illusions I cherished. When Mother said we were going to a concentration camp, I argued with her until that day when I saw Seattle for the last time.
0: So this is, this is your mother's words. This is what she experienced. Obviously, that's so emotional. What, what was your response musically? Like, how did you decide to use music to make people understand what a tragedy this was? And it's a tragedy that so many people don't even know about.
1: Yeah. It was difficult because it didn't happen to me. So in order to write from a place that felt real... I wanted to use the voices of other people that it actually happened to. So Mm -hmm. I decided to organize the piece in a way where that could be done. So I used poetry and prose written by each generation. Mm -hmm. So my generation. I used a poem called Susumu, Mm -hmm. and it was written by someone who was talking about it from more or less my generation's perspective. Mm -hmm. And then for my mom's piece, who's Nisei, meaning that she's Japanese, born here with Japanese parents, I wanted her words and then I also use a poem about the camps from the essay my grandparents perspective mm. and I wrote the music based off of each of those poems to bring me into and the music into a very real space where I could actually address it musically
0: and I know I know that you used Japanese instruments as well as jazz like you did an almost like a melding of who you are right I mean the music was a mixture of different sounds from different culture, yeah? Well, yeah, I
1: use Koto Shakuhachi mm-hmm. and a Japanese singer also who plays the Koto. She has a very unique style of Japanese style of singing. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to incorporate that with jazz instruments. So mm-hmm. I had like clarinet which was, you know, a lot of people were listening to music from that time. Mm-hmm. And I used trombone, violin, jazz instruments or rhythm section mm-hmm. and combined it with those other instruments.
0: It's amazing. And, and who got to hear this music where was it performed and did it achieve what you wanted to achieve?
1: Well, I got really lucky because I had a a person who was very interested in my career in music, and he was an ethnomusicologist as well as a producer. Mm -hmm. And so he actually produced my first CD, which was called With an Open Heart. And he was interested in making a film about the piece, which he did do from a musicology perspective. So he took us into the studio and recorded the piece as well as made a film with interviews with my mother and me. Wow. And uh, so he made a whole film about my composing that piece.
0: That's what's so amazing to me is that you can use music to bring attention to something like the Japanese internment camps, right? I mean, music is so powerful because it makes you feel things, right? I mean, if there's a, somebody who doesn't know but they hear this. They hear the sounds. They hear the words. They hear the music. They know that it's painful, that they understand there's pain, there's longing, there's anger. And all of that can be in a musical composition. How do you put all of that emotion into a song? Like, What is that process like for you? I don't know that you actually set out to say, well, I'm going to put the emotion in the
1: song. Mm-hmm. I think what you have to do is to set yourself free and to be able to be in a place where you're not for me, anyway, to be able to create. I like to be able to feel safe in a creative space, mm-hmm. which means not only safe, but free. And free in the sense that you can't be worried about, oh, what is this person going to think, or what's that person going to think, or mm. your ego, or any of that. It has to be like this pure space of creation. Mm-hmm. I knew there were certain things I wanted to address in that piece, and mm-hmm. there are, there is a space in that piece where things really... Like, I had audience members, because you asked me who got to hear this. We actually did a tour of colleges, and we were able to actually perform the piece live. And I had kids come up to me and say, that was really scary. The The movement that I wrote where my mother reads this... Or just tell me that they could feel that, you know, Mm -hmm. they could feel this sort of sense of whatever. And, you know, it's not like I plan to get that out Mm -hmm, of the music. mm -hmm, You mm -hmm. hope that your music will have impact from an emotional place. Right. But the way that that works and how it's so mysterious, you know, Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. really hard to know exactly how that works. For me, I think it has to do with just really living your life Mm -hmm. and trying to be true to the things that matter to you.
0: That's wonderful. I mean, that's I think what every artist wants to to be able to do and to say that I've done that, you know, that I've lived my life that way and that my art has been, you know, it's mattered. It's mattered to me. And that's what I've created. I'm wondering what your mother's response was to your piece. You know, she was in the piece, so Mm -hmm. having her in the piece was very
1: powerful for Mm -hmm. her because Mm -hmm. she got a chance to read it with this music happening, you know, Mm -hmm. behind her. And Mm -hmm. I think it just meant a lot to her to be able to, like, join me, collaborate in a way, and to come together in an artistic way to, Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. get to some of this. So I think the catharsis is definitely a way of looking at it, that she had a chance to do that. But, you know, there was a film that was made on my mother where the filmmaker actually took my mother – because he had heard about her story, to the camps... And my sister went along in this film. And my mother was able to literally go to the camp, be on film while she was looking for the bunker or whatever that they mm-hmm, stated, mm-hmm. which, of course, they weren't there. But she was looking for the markers to try to find her way in it. Mm-hmm. And then also they took her back to Bainbridge Island for the first time. She hadn't been there since she had been taken. Mm-hmm. So the filmmaker, his name was Mike Uno, made this piece that was done for a series on Japanese-American mm-hmm. citizens. Yes, And that film was called Emmy. By the way, my film was called Out from the Silence, the one on the piece. Right, right.
0: So we will definitely put links to all of that so people can look these things up and see them for themselves. So you've been making music since you were 15, like professionally, I'll say, since you left home at 15. And I just wonder, like, you've mentioned that you have a daughter. I think you have a son as well. You're back living in Philadelphia after living in Seattle and Boston. What has been your kind of strategy to be a creative with longevity? You
1: know, I never looked at it as having a particular strategy. Mm-hmm. I just think that because of my values, I think it helped me that my values don't center around necessarily materialism. You know what I okay, mean? Yeah. I mean, in some ways it's kind of crazy because I think personally, I have probably sacrificed much more than maybe the average person might want to.
2: Mm-hmm, <laughs> I mm-hmm.
1: mean, because like, materialism really doesn't play a huge part in what I consider to be part of my value system, right? So in some ways, it's been to the point of really like having to pull it together on a certain level. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then I feel like I'm still doing that in my life. So if you're measuring success from that point of view, then, but see, I, I don't tend to do that. Right. Although a lot of time, I don't feel necessarily successful because of those things, too. Right. So it's kind of a thing where I'm also always trying to remind myself, yeah, but you're still playing music after all this time. Because yeah. at one point, you know, I'm, I am an educator, mm-hmm. but I'm not an academic, quote unquote, And that right. I didn't choose academia as a, a path, which many people do. And I'm not putting that down. Right. It's just that I knew that there was a part of me that I didn't want to necessarily give up in order to do that. Mm -hmm. So my career path has been all over the place on a Mm -hmm. certain level Mm -hmm. in terms of especially earning an income and and just being able to survive, which is huge and it's key. And I don't necessarily think that I do that particularly (laughs) (laughs) – especially if you measure it in those terms. Right. But – There are other really important things in life, like Mm -hmm. I have my health. I have tremendous support Mm -hmm. in my friends and family and community of people. And I think that part of it is about engaging a community or finding who your people are uh, and creating a circle of energy that can sustain you in terms of the things that you actually really want to do. And of some of the things I didn't really plan. Like recently, I've been somewhat successful in having some of my music performed by orchestras. Mm And this is new. This just started. And Uh it started as a result of a program that I just became involved in called the Jazz Composers Orchestra Intensive. Mm -hmm. And it was put together literally to get jazz composers to write for orchestra. Mm -hmm. And they literally, you applied as a jazz composer and then you were sort of thrust into this intensive where they expose you to the orchestra, conductors and composers and people who talk about their work. And then they encourage you to write For orchestra, you submit, and then if your piece got chosen, you had a chance to have a reading with the major orchestra. So I made it through the whole entire process. I applied. I got into the intensive. I wrote my work. It got performed by American Composers Orchestra, and that particular piece opened up this whole new field to me that I had sort of walked in through the back door. I wasn't necessarily planning on that to happen, Mm -hmm. but then when these things do happen, it's just like knowing that the American Composers Orchestra was going to actually perform my work, I was like— yeah, I, you know, and but I also it corresponded with the time that I decided to leave the East Coast and move to Seattle, mm-hmm. and I had a place to stay for mm-hmm. a certain amount of time, mm-hmm. and I used that time to write the piece. I was hanging out the UW music library and listening to scores and just studying, and mm-hmm. that's kind of a crazy thing to do at my age. You know <laughs> what I mean? I mean, like just to kind of throw it all aside and go. I'm I'm just doing this. But that's that's
0: that's your path. Right. I mean, that's what you've done is you've left yourself open to what is out there. Right. And not necessarily been choosing academia or something that wouldn't allow you to take these opportunities if they came to you. Yeah, I think
1: we all make different choices, mm-hmm. and you can be creative and be an academic. I, sure. I don't think that's impossible. It's just that it's not an easy thing to make happen. It's mm-hmm. not easy to do. The, all the choices kind of come with a cost right. uh, to some extent, you right. know. I do think that as a creative that it's important to be patient. Mm-hmm. Patience is huge. Right. To go after what you really love, to dream big. I mean, that sounds so corny. No, but, no, but it's true. I mean, it's like... To know it is that you want, to know it is that you want to do, and also to re- be open is really key. Mm-hmm. Like right now, I'm coming into a phase of my life where I'm recognizing that people are actually looking up to me. Like mm-hmm. I have young people that actually look up to me, yes. and that you do hold a certain amount of history. Everyone's lives hold a certain amount of history. I mean, the fact that I have a direct contact with someone like Mary Lou Williams or Philly Joe Jones or people like that, it's my generation that's moving now, and I'm into this period of my life where that's part of my history that mm-hmm. that's a very vital and real thing mm-hmm. but it's also about recognizing it and embracing it and then what are you going to do about it yes right
0: yes um what are you most proud of in your musical career and what do you want your legacy to be for the jazz musicians coming up behind you what do you want them to know about sumi tanoka
1: Well, the thing about jazz that most attracts me, and I think it's true in a very global sense, the reason why jazz is so vital of Mm -hmm. an art form, and I guess you could say this about many types of art forms, but in jazz, you know, if you listen to all the great musicians, all the people that have become giants in this music, Mm -hmm. the reason why they are that is because they have come to their own selves. Mm -hmm. When you hear them they sound like who they actually are. Mm. You have to be true to who you are. So Mm. with jazz, I think that I hope in terms of what I consider to be a success is that when people hear my music, they would know that it's my music.
2: Yeah. You know what I mean? Or that it's
1: or if it's my composition or you know, something to that effect. I don't think about it a lot. I mean, you know what I mean, because it's really about Doing it, right, you right. know. And I tell you the truth, Lori, I'm not sure exactly what has sustained me to still be doing this at this point in my life. Mm-hmm. But I don't take it for granted, and mm-hmm. I am so grateful for having the history that I do have and that mm-hmm. I do carry. And uh, there's always things I wish I could do better, and mm-hmm. I wish I had done, or that I still want to do. And mm-hmm. there's always that, you know, as because as an artist, you can never do enough. You can never know enough. You know right, what I mean? There's, right. it's, it's just. Hugely vast. But the thing that jazz gives me is this freedom to be truthful in terms of, like, what it is and who you are. You can't really fake that. Right, right. So some of it is acceptance, too. It's accepting the fact, well, well, okay, I can do this. Maybe I can't do that as well, but I can do this.
0: So since you just have to do it, do you think you could end our interview by doing something at the piano so we can hear you? be you, and everyone can get a little taste of Sumi. Absolutely. Wonderful.
1: Yeah. I'll play, um, I'll play a piece that I don't think I could have written in, uh, without the influence of Mary Lou Williams in my life. It's weird how, you know, you don't know exactly what it is and how it comes through, but she definitely is within the realm of what the tone sometimes of what I do. And uh, this piece is a piece I wrote called Mingus Mood.
0: So we're going to end this interview listening to Sumi play. So thank you so much for joining us today, Sumi. We really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thanks, Laurie. I'm really happy to be here. It's been my pleasure. And uh, we went by so fast.
0: Great. Well, we'll have you back again for part two. All right. you, but musicians truly inspire me. Listening to Sumi talk about her lifelong commitment to making music completely reinforced my respect and awe of the artist's life. And even though Sumi composed our theme music, I didn't really know much of her backstory. I didn't know about her mother's time in the internment camps or about the work she composed to honor that tragedy. I loved hearing about how she knew she was going to be a jazz musician after seeing Thelonious Monk play live when she was just 13 years old. And on a date with her parents. And as a writer who also wants to continue creating and innovating and improving My Craft, I felt inspired by Sumi's ability to leave herself open to new opportunities as an artist. I hope you all enjoyed our conversation and the music. If you want to hear more of Sumi's music and support her career, please visit her website, SumiTanoka.com. That's Sumi, S U M I, Tanoka, T O N O O. And speaking of support, I want to thank all of you for your support of our Kickstarter campaign. On January 2nd, 2019, we officially made our goal. Woohoo! I appreciate your generosity and I appreciate you. Now, if you want to keep the love fest going, please consider leaving us a review or a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or simply tell a friend to listen to our show. Better yet, tell them to subscribe so they don't miss a single episode. Don't forget, you can always get more Melting Pot content on our website, myamericanmeltingpot.com, which is also where you'll find our show notes and resources from each podcast episode. Episode four of My American Melting Pot was recorded at WRTI Studios in Philadelphia. Our producer and editor is Brad Linder. Our sound engineers are Tyler McClure and Joe Patty. Our social media and publicity intern is Darian Muka. And our theme music was composed by the wonderful Sumi Tanoka. Thank you, Sumi. And thank you all for listening. And remember to always live your life in color. wow oh my god that was beautiful god that was amazing